0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory whom have i in heaven but you and earth has nothing i desire besides you my flesh and my heart may fail but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever those who are far from you will perish you destroy all who are unfaithful to you but as for me it is good to be near god i have made the sovereign lord my refuge I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome again to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you. Today is actually Trinity Sunday in the liturgical church calendar. Thank you. Comes, comes once a year, 57 days after Easter, so Pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection, and then Trinity Sunday is the next one after that. And when we began dreaming of Trinity years and years ago, before it was planted, we chose the name Trinity to to honor and and to remember the, the beauty of God's nature, the mystery of God's nature, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the first ever thing we did as a church, was a Bible study in our living room. We had chicken tacos, and we read Ephesians 1, and that happened to be on Trinity Sunday. So June 2017, five years ago. If I was capable of nostalgia, this would be the moment. I think that's pretty cool. That was five years ago, right around now. So happy Trinity Sunday, our fifth one as a congregation. Uh, What we've done over the last five years is we've We've tried to establish who we are as a church, what God is, is calling us to, who he has made us to be, and so we have formed a set of values, and, and one of those values, the value of prayer is the one that has probably grown the most of, of any of them over the last five years. Prayer is something that means so, so much to us, it characterizes everything that we do, our Sunday gatherings, our community groups, Friday night prayer, all of these things. And prayer really is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, that God has invited us into his presence through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So now we can enjoy fellowship with him. We can have conversation with him. Prayer is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Every now and then people ask me how, how they might grow in prayer. So maybe they'll say, I've, I've been a Christian for five years or 15 years or 45 years, but I've never really learned how to pray, Where I begin? And the two answers that I give every single time are to pray with others and pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms, pray with others. And once you've mastered these two things, then you can really pray the Psalms and pray with others. And I think these two things are so critically important for us as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, as we grow in intimacy with God. And so what we're doing this summer is setting aside the next 10 to 12 weeks to do a teaching series on prayer Entirely out of the Psalms, and so we're going to learn to pray together. We're going to learn to pray through the Psalms because the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. If you go to Barnes and Noble, they've got a surprisingly large Christian book section, like it's a couple of of bookcases, uh, and there's no theology shelf, which is you know a little disappointing, but I'm okay with it. Uh, but there is like an entire bookcase of just devotionals, you know, like the little short you know reads, one for each day. But the Bible actually has its own devotional book within it. And the Psalms are the sort of biblical devotion book that we have that has been inherited or handed down to us. And so the Psalms were how the Israelites learned how to pray, how to sing, how to do life in community. The Psalms would have been read and, and studied and memorized and sang by Jesus himself. Jesus actually quotes from the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book throughout his ministry. Most, almost every one of the New Testament book directly quotes the Psalms as well. And I think it's interesting if you think about it, the, the New Testament, as it was being written after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles and the first century believers, they were deciding by the power of the Holy Spirit what to include in the New Testament. And they included four gospels, which are, are narratives of Jesus's life. They included a history book, of which is Acts They included lots of theology books, which are the the letters of Paul and Peter and others, and they included a book of of hope and eternity, Revelation. But they didn't create a a devotional book or or a prayer book or a, a worship book. And the reason for that was because they knew that the Psalms were already all that they needed. That the Psalms were perfect and that that they could easily be carried over into the New Testament in the early church era because they were still so, so beautiful, so rich, and so helpful for us as Christians. The Psalms are a type of a a Bible within a Bible. They have stories of Israel's history. There are, are wisdom Psalms that read like Proverbs. Some of them contain prophecies that look forward to the coming Messiah. Some of them long for the renewal of all things as if they're like Revelation. The Psalms have so, so much within them, but first and foremost, the Psalms teach us how to pray. They teach us how to, how to sing. They teach us how to do life together in community and in God's presence. And so today I want to do sort of an overview of how to pray the Psalms, and I want to use Psalm 73, which is my favorite Psalm. Uh, I do have more than one favorite Psalm. Uh, I'm, I'm allowed to. I have 150 favorite Psalms, but this is my favorite, number 73. And I think this is maybe the most helpful psalm to look at as a pattern for our everyday prayers. And so we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the pattern for prayer. Second, we're going to look at Psalm 73 as describing the heart of prayer. And then third, we're going to look at the life of prayer. So the pattern, which will take up most of the time, the pattern and then the heart and the life of prayer. So you can look at verse 1 in in Psalm 73, if you've got your, your bulletin or your Bible in front of you. Asaph is one of Israel's primary worship leaders. And he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, this is a very traditional opening for a psalm. It's similar to what we do in our liturgy uh, as a a call to worship. But this right out of the gate is is Asaph simply praising God, adoring God for who he is. He's, He's reorienting himself and his mind around what's true. Of God, And so the very first thing that we see in this psalm is simply praise. We're going to look at actually five different forms of prayer that show up in Psalm 73. The very first one is praise. And so Asaph is saying, rather than, than starting with where I'm at right now, rather than starting with my own experience or my current feelings, I'm going to start with what's true of God, and that is that he is good to his people regardless of anything else that comes later in the psalm, regardless of anything else that comes up in your own prayer life, starting with a a sort of statement of faith in God and who He is, it's always the best place to begin. Now, other times, if you're in a, a crisis or you're struggling or you're totally overwhelmed, you can start right where you are. You can start in that place, and some of the psalms do that as well. But hopefully you're not just going to the Psalms whenever you're in crisis or whenever you're overwhelmed, as good as that is. But Rather, there are times set aside for us to to go deep in the Psalms, to begin with praise, and then to let everything flow out of that posture of praise. So in other words, begin with God, begin with His faithfulness, and then let everything else follow. So the first major movement of Psalm 73 is simply praise, just a single verse. Look at verse 2. He says, but as for me, so this is who God is, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now this moves us into the next form of prayer, which is confession. Asaph is is honestly and and humbly bringing his sin before God. He's saying as for me I am I am not like God. I am not perfect and sinless like God, but rather I had almost slipped. And then he's very specific. He says I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So now Asaph is is setting the theme for this psalm in this confession and he's He's really giving an honest admission of guilt and wrongdoing. So he's saying there, there are arrogant people who are getting ahead, but the biggest issue is in my own heart. The fact that I am, I am envying these people, I am angered by their success. I think this is something we can probably all identify with in one way or another. It's easy to envy those who don't follow God or who treat others in in poor ways or they cheat to get ahead, and and then they go on and and seemingly become more and more prosperous. He's going to get into that in great detail in a moment, but Asaph is looking on the injustice of the world, and it's angering him, which in itself can be a really good thing, but he's also realizing that that anger has turned to envy. It's turned to sin, and so he's bringing that before the Lord in confession. Confession in this in the Psalms is always so specific, it's always tangible. And in the same way, confession for us is not a it's not a, a general or a generic thing that we do we do. I mean, true confession is not just saying I'm I'm such a horrible person, I'm such a sinner, I don't know why, why God saved me. I, you know, I, don't, I don't deserve anything. Rather, confession in, in the scriptures is saying, look, here's Here's something I've done that's not in line with God's word. I bring this before the Lord. I seek forgiveness, and then I live in that forgiveness. And so for us, as we're talking with one another, it really does us no good to beat up ourselves, but rather what is helpful is bringing our sins specifically to the Father and specifically to trusted people in our community so that we might experience forgiveness and healing and renewal. Now, moving on to verse 4, most of the psalm is actually a lament. That's, that's the next form of prayer is lament. And lament is basically just another word for complaining. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite authors, he just calls this whole category of prayer complaining. He says in verse 4, he's speaking of the arrogant, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills, therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of earth. I mean, he's just kind of going on a bit of a rant. Like he looks out and he sees injustice in the world and he sees these arrogant people getting ahead and and he's, he's really worked up about it. And so he's taking these things and he's bringing them before God and it's almost like he's just dumping them at God's feet. Almost like he's throwing them at God. Like, here are all the things that I'm upset about. In some ways, it seems like he's even blaming God for allowing this to happen in the world. It doesn't make sense. And so he's just heaping all of these complaints at God. What's remarkable is that this is, this is actually captured for us in Scripture as a model for prayer. And then incredible that Asaph, this, this great worship leader in, in Israel's history, is bringing all of his junk, all of his stuff, and he's, he's throwing it at God. And this is, this is how we ought to pray. Now, it's not to say that we, we also ought, you know, we shouldn't trust God or we shouldn't put our faith in Him and renew our commitment because we're going to get to all those things. But Asaph is a godly person. He looks at his circumstances. He's surrounded by trouble and suffering. And he's crying out to God. And I think we can relate to the content of what he's crying out about because he's saying the arrogant, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Like they're, they're, they don't get sick as much as me. They're stronger than me or they're, they're, more, you know, they're better looking than me or they, they have more going for them. They're free from human burdens. Like, you know, during COVID, they went to their lake house and just hung out and like watched Netflix for a couple of years and they could, they could work from there. You know, they're... They're not plagued by human ills. You know, they didn't even get COVID because they were just so far removed from what the rest of us went through. It says their mouths like claim to heaven, which means that they're they're claiming to be believers. They're they're going to church occasionally and saying that they're going to heaven, and yet it also says their tongues take possession of earth. So their entire lives are, are worldly, and yet they're still trying to say that they're religious and spiritual. And so Asaph is driven crazy by all this. He's frustrated, he's mad, he's coming before God. It's maybe a little bit dramatic, like he says, verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. It's like, okay, Asaph, that's a lot. Okay, you got it out of your system. Every morning brings new punishments. Like, that's intense. It's probably not 100% accurate, like has every morning brought new punishments? But the point is that that's what it feels like. You've probably been there, right? Like in a season where it feels like every single day is a little bit worse than the one before it, everything that you're trying is not working, the the burdens that you're carrying are just getting heavier and heavier, you wake up every morning feeling a little bit worse than you did the day before, And that's where Asaph's at. His heart is is wrecked. It's broken. The burdens are are too heavy, and now he's throwing them down in front of the Father. That's what I love about the Psalms, how how honest they really are. And that God is, in a sense, inviting these kinds of laments, these kinds of complaints. They're not complaints against God, but they're complaints to God. God is inviting this because it's what's actually going on in our own hearts and minds. It does us no good to to think and feel all of these things, but then use a totally different set of words with God in prayer. It's like if that's what's going on in your heart and mind, you might as well bring that to God. Like He can can handle it. You can can offload all of that onto Him. And in fact, you won't actually be able to release it until you release it to God. The Psalms are all... People wrestling with God. They're not praying easy platitudes, and they're they're not taking the easy way out of hard things. They're not ignoring their hearts and their minds. They're taking everything to God. So your prayers cannot be too honest. If you're upset, then take that to the Lord. If you're sad, take that to the Lord. Uh, The old hymn says, take everything to God in prayer. And lay it out before Him. Lay it at His feet. I keep getting sick, Lord. My job's disappointing. My relationships are hurting. Bring it all to the Father. Now the fourth movement is what I call contemplation. In verse 16, He says, When I tried to understand all this... So He's talking about all these burdens, all these these things that are driving Him crazy in the world. He says, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was a senseless and ignorant I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. So now Asaph's getting a little bit of perspective and he's recognizing that he is, I love the phrase, a brute beast before God, because that's certainly how I feel when I'm angry, when I'm bringing my stuff to God or if I haven't brought it yet to God, but I'm just kind of like pacing around the house, like fuming about something that's probably not even that important. And I recognize I'm I'm acting like a, a brute beast. I'm just boiling over with anger, and then when I finally bring it into the sanctuary of God, it's transformed. He says, none of this made any sense. I looked out into the world, I saw the injustice. It felt like you were distant, God, and then I came into the sanctuary and everything started to come together. Now, when Asaph says sanctuary, there's two levels on which he's speaking. The first is probably just a reference to coming into the temple. Asaph was one of the contemporaries of of David, and so he would have been able to go into a temple, a place of worship, and there, and, and singing and praying and being among the faithful people of Israel, he could have been encouraged, and he could have been refreshed, and he could have gotten new perspective. But the second and the deeper and the ultimate meaning is that sanctuary is far more about the presence of God than than any one physical place. Sanctuary is a rich theme throughout the Scriptures. Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were placed in sanctuary. They were placed in the Garden of Eden to to walk with God in in the cool of the day. And yet when they sinned, they lost that place. And ever since, we've been, we've been trying to get back to Eden. We've been longing for Eden. We've been, we've been striving for sanctuary. We get little glimpses of it here and there when, when the presence of God comes down and leads Israel through the Red Sea. We get a major glimpse of it when we see Jesus come to earth as the perfect representation of the presence of God in human form. In our own life, we get these little glimpses of sanctuary and and prayer and worship and in fellowship together. We know one day that all of life is pointing to sanctuary, renewed, revived, restored to us. That's where we're going. That's what we have to look forward to. And these little glimpses here and now are to keep us going. So that when we act like brute beasts, when we have all this senselessness and ignorance, and we bring all of our junk before God and we come into His presence, we realize how peaceful it is and joyful. The things start to, to come together and they start to make sense. We remember that life apart from God is not all that it's cracked up to be. That even though others are seeming to get ahead, it's not leading to a good place at all. Charles Spurgeon has a a three-volume set on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. And on this psalm, he says, Asaph's heart gazed within the veil, and he stood where the holy God stands. Thus, he shifted his point of view, and apparent disorder resolved itself into harmony. See, prayer is about approaching God, not so that we might change God's mind, but rather that He might change ours. That he might change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we view his world. And something that's implicit in this moment is is the assurance that Asaph has that he can actually approach God. There's an implicit assurance of pardon or forgiveness here. That Asaph knows he's a child of God and he can take all of his ranting and raving right to the Father. And in the same way, even more we can, knowing what Christ has done for us knowing that through his life, death, and resurrection, we have complete access to God as our father. We can come and just dump out all of this stuff before the throne. It's as if Asaph is bringing accusations against God, and God is simply taking him up in his arms. And as soon as that Asaph's there, all of that melts away, and he can just simply enjoy the presence, enjoy the sanctuary of God. This is what contemplation is. It's meditating on God's word. It's meditating on your own life experience and then making the connections. So we th- see things in the world that don't make sense, but then in prayer, as we lift them up before God, he, he changes our thinking. He gives us his own perspective. Spurgeon writes, Asaph's eye was fixed too much on one thing. He saw the present of the arrogant and he forgot their future. He saw their outward display and forgot their soul's discomfort. Now the fifth movement comes beginning in verse 23 and it's simply communion. Asaph says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, oh, This is a, a beautiful second half to a, a powerful and an honest psalm. Asaph has led us through praise and confession and lament and contemplation, and he's leading us to communion, to, to oneness and fellowship with God, intimacy with God. C.S. Lewis has a book on the Psalms, and he says, a man can't always be defending the truth. There must be some time to feed on it. And that's what the Psalms are for to let us feed on God's word, to to take this book and and eat it, to feast on God's word. Asaph is saying, earth has nothing that will fully and forever satisfy us. Further, everything on this earth is moving into decline. Our, Our strength, our abilities, our health, our youthfulness, everything is slowly fading and wearing out in this world. There's only one thing that can increase Forever and ever. And that's our relationship to God. The intimacy that we have with God can continue throughout life and then continue for all eternity. This is leading us into the heart of prayer, the second biggest, the second big thing. Jesse was telling me about a podcast she listened to. It was a while back. And a counselor was saying how. COVID had been difficult for for everybody, but in in all different ways. So for some people, they had to work way more. Other people lost their jobs. Some people had financial struggles. Some people had kids at home all the time. Some people were lonely. And yet it it, it affected us all in real ways. And so the the counselors were talking about how when when we most needed one another for support, the people that we were going to were also just as overwhelmed and burdened in us. As us. And so as a result, we couldn't care for one another. And culturally, everything was more difficult. And yet one of the counselors made this side comment, uh, somewhat paraphrasing, but said there's, there's no self-replenishing source of help and strength in the world. Somewhere we can go and get filled back up, we have to do this ourselves. And yet, when we look at the Psalms, that's exactly what we see. Asaph says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, there is a place that you can go at any moment to find joy, to find strength, to find hope, to find renewal. We don't have to find it within ourselves. We don't have to place that burden on other people. We don't have to try to work it up by our best efforts. This is why almost every single psalm describes God as our help, our refuge, our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Because God is able and God is willing. He delights to carry us through our challenges. This is Asaph's summary, his, his closing argument or his reminder to himself. He's saying it's better to have God alone than to have everything else. And he closes by saying, as for me, it's good to be near God and I will tell of all your deeds. And This is the heart of of praying the Psalms, bringing your total honesty to the Father, approaching God and then finding that communion with Him. Bringing everything that's on your mind on your heart to God, laying it all out before Him, and then simply enjoying His presence. You may not get all the answers, but you get more of God. Even the structure of the Psalms, it's meant to to invite, to enable and promote honesty. They're designed to draw emotion out of us. That's why we have 150 of these Psalms, so that every single human experience, every emotion that we feel, is found somewhere in the Psalms. We can find a place that draws it out of us and brings it before the Lord. Asaph is saying, bring your honest self, bring all of your stuff into the sanctuary of God. First Peter says it like this, cast all your anxieties on the Lord, for He cares for you. This is the heart of prayer, total honesty coming into communion with God. Now, the last thing is the life of prayer. How do we move from understanding the pattern of prayer and understanding the heart of prayer to, to actually praying? I've talked about these things a lot, and they're really, really simple. But I'll, I'll give you a few things that have been helpful for myself and for believers uh, throughout history, really. And so to cultivate a, a life of prayer, the first thing is to make room. You simply make room for prayer. Summer's a really, really good time to do this, but, but find a, a time in your day. encourage you to do it every single day, but find a time to make room for prayer. We can't create a, a life of prayer without having the time and space for it in the same way we can't expect a friendship or a, a romantic relationship to grow if we don't have quality time. All of us are probably busy enough that that quality time is not just going to show up. It has to be planned for. It has to be guarded and protected. And so how much more with the most important relationship in our life should we plan for, schedule, and guard our times of prayer? For a lot of people, this will be first thing in the morning, making coffee and getting in a, a comfortable chair and opening up the Psalms or opening up the Scriptures to begin to pray through them. If you're not a morning person, you know, don't let the morning people make you feel guilty, you know, with their waking up at 5 a.m. and accomplishing things out of insecurity, right? That's all of us. Maybe it's the afternoon for you. Maybe it's early evening. Maybe it's right before bed. But whenever you are most able to be consistently in prayer, find a way to make that happen, whether it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, however many minutes. But make room for prayer. Second, read a psalm daily. One of the professors at my seminary, Donald Whitney, has got a book called Praying the Scriptures, and he recommends taking the, the psalms of the day and picking one. So like today's the 12th, so you would look at Psalm 12, and then 42, 72, 102, 132, and just sort of read through them, sort of skim them, and then, and then wait for something to really stick out to you. You can read all, all five deeply if you, if you can. But then focus in on, on one phrase or one verse or, or even one whole psalm. And then take that and begin to, to put it into your own words. Begin to, begin to pray it up to God. Now take the pattern of the psalms as, as it connects with you and turn it into your own prayer. One of the things both my wife and I have been doing for a while now is to do all five psalms each day. You actually get through all of the psalms 12 times a year that way. I know a lot of people are big on the Bible a year plan. I've done some of those, and and that's great. But I would say for for your own soul and life, it's it's good to read Leviticus and Numbers every year. I'm all for that. I think even better would be reading the Psalms all the way through every month. if you can get time in the Psalms, get time in the Gospels, do do all the other books as much as you can. But I think your primary diet's probably going to be in the Psalms in the Gospels. So, second thing is read a psalm daily. The third thing is to pray with others. Even though we're often praying alone, we typically don't learn to pray alone. We learn by praying with others. This is why we pray out loud in many of our services. It's why we pray in our community groups, like hopefully not just taking a long time just to share requests, but to actually pray together. It's why we do Friday night prayer, and it's why we teach on prayer pretty often. Because we need to learn to pray by praying with others. I'm still learning to pray by hearing other people pray. The easiest next step is actually this week. It's another Friday night prayer. We do this to help one another learn and grow in prayer. It's at Mark and Allison's house this week, Friday night, 6.30 to 8. You might be thinking, "I'm, I'm... not comfortable praying out loud, and that's totally fine. There are people every week that don't pray out loud. It's perfectly fine. You might think that's, that's weird. I don't know what happens at prayer night, or they're like tongues and prophecy. And no, that's, that's not what we do at these prayer nights. We have other spaces for that. I believe in that. We just focus on, I was going to say snake handling, but I don't know if you could handle the joke. We just focus on prayer, seeking God's face, praying for one another. Praying for our city. That's what we do at Friday night prayer. Now the fourth thing is not just pray with others, but pray for others. I'm sure you get stuck in your prayers. I get get stuck in prayer all the time. Maybe I read through the Psalms and maybe nothing really stands out after, after all five Psalms. Maybe I write out a few sentences and then I'm like, well, that was 90 seconds, now what? I just feel disconnected and I, and I feel stuck. and I'm not sure how to press through that. And for me, the best way to kind of get through that is by praying for others. Beginning to, to pray for my spouse or my kids or my friends or people in my community group. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your parents. Pray for your siblings. Just begin to pray for the people in your life. And pretty soon that, that time will pass really, really quickly. And as you pray for them, you'll begin to notice how much your heart softens towards these people as well. You'll also start to see prayers be answered, and then you'll be even more energized to pray for others more and more. And so pray with others, pray for others. And here's the very last thing. Rest in Jesus' prayers. Every single one of us will will be a prayer novice for for all of our lives. There are no prayer experts. There's one prayer expert. Gospel turn. It's Jesus. Only one person who mastered prayer on this earth. John 17. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. He's praying for us. He says, Father, I pray for those you gave me out of the world. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And he goes on to pray. You should look at it this afternoon. He prays for us to have protection from the enemy. He prays for us to be sanctified or made holy. He prays for us to have unity together, to be sent into the world in ministry. In verse 13, he prays for the fullness, for the full measure of my joy to be within them. And we get to see the the beating heart of Jesus as he pours out his prayers for us, his followers. This was all right before he was arrested, right before Gethsemane, as he's going to the cross. What's on his heart and his mind is his people. He's praying for us. He's praying for our lives. In fact, if you ask, what is Jesus doing right now? The theological answer for that is intercession. He's praying for us. So think about it. Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. Later, he ascended back into heaven. And so after the ascension and until he returns to earth in the second coming, at the renewal of all things, like what is he doing between going back to heaven and coming down? The scriptures say he's praying for us. He's interceding for us to the Father. He's taking our requests and bringing them to God. And the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us, according to Romans 8. And so think about that. Even in the weakness of our own prayer lives, Christ is taking those prayers before His Father. We know the Son has perfect access to the Father. And what Jesus is doing here and now is praying for us. And so as we close, I want to I compel you to, to pray the Psalms, to seek the face of God, to do it intentionally. I mean, I know prayer feels its relationship, and yet also if, if you don't have some structure, if you don't have a plan, if you don't guard that time, it'll be so, so difficult. So find a way to, to make room for it. Learn the language of prayer in the Psalms. Learn to approach God boldly, humbly, honestly. You will get weary. You will have dry seasons of prayer. You'll you'll experience unanswered prayer and, and much delayed answers to prayer. But in all of that, you're still entering the sanctuary of God. You're still in His presence before the throne, before your Father. And so take it all to Him in prayer. Remember that Jesus, too, is praying for you, praying for you to lay hold of everything that's good, lay hold of everything that's already true of you, and to experience all of the fullness of God. Let's pray.